Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Forrester CXCast. Sam Stern joined with Jenny Wise across from me in the studio. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we have on the line from our Amsterdam office, our newest colleague, Karine Cardona-Smits. Hi, Karine. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you. Well, this is our chance and our listeners' chance to get to know you, so we're excited to be speaking with you. You're a senior analyst on our team. Tell us a little bit about your recent background before you joined Forrester as a CX analyst. Sure. So I've been a practitioner for a little bit more than 15 years before joining uh, Forrester. And my career moved from psychology to web development and to UX, UX strategy, and then lately service design. And I also moved from, you know, being a solo practitioner dealing with mainly desktop and web-based solutions to mobile solutions and from just being a solo practice in engineer's team to a role where I had to build and lead a team with about 10 services designers in the last agency I worked out. Great. So 15 years, you're well past the 10,000 hours, uh, you know, sort of uh, <laughs> to be an the, the fictional threshold to be an expert. So you're a super expert at this point. Tell us, I'm really interested in the psychology background and then how you got from that to sort of UX and, and this new world that you were part of. Is there a moment there? Is there sort of an origin story where you got your powers and moved into the other discipline? Were you seeing things in psychology that sort of set you up well for user experience? Well, you know, my career as it is today was, was not something I had planned. Uh, I really, <laughs> I graduated in France and I was prepared to be a psychologist. But it was in the late 90s when the, the internet exploded in France. Um, and, but, you know, that's a long time ago, like when you, you could reach connection speeds of about 14 kilobytes per second. So the web was really different than compared to what it is today. But I was fascinated immediately. I really wanted to know how this new communication media was working. And naturally, I built my first web pages probably somewhere in 1999 and changed my career really soon after to, to embrace that new field. So it was not planned at all. <laughs> and um, well, I remember at the beginning of my career that the French industry was talking about semantic web and accessibility. And when I started, I was mainly helping teams understand the benefits of separation of codes with CSS on one side and semantic HTML on another one. So it was really far away from my initial academic studies. But quickly, I saw the real benefits. And I I could see it on three different levels. Obviously, first in the, in the research field, you know, I was at ease with interviews and observations and the research part of the UX work was kind of natural for mm-hmm. me. And then secondly, I'd say in the communication with teams and clients, it was very easy for me to spot how words can sometimes be used in different meanings from one team member to another one mm-hmm. or from a client to a member of my team. And that was really helpful to be able to clarify things together in order to not start on with a misunderstanding. And I'd say finally, what I'd call the framing part. When your role is about improving existing products or helping product owners make decisions to envision their roadmap, it happened quite a few times that instead of improving a particular flow, we just ended up killing some parts because the user research was showing that it was not the right thing to do. 
in that aspect, really, my background in psychology helped me a lot. Yeah, I think that's always a really relevant background, especially if the reason you're interested in it is understanding, you know, how people think, right, and how people work and researching why they do the things they do or how they perceive things in a certain way. And it's interesting because you then applied that both to understanding the user and user research, but also to understanding the stakeholders and the people within the business and how they will perceive things and how things should be positioned so that they make sense to them. So then sort of following that pivot into user experience or service design makes sense. Could you walk us through a little bit the progression of then the teams that you did? You mentioned you were sort of a a team of one um, and then you sort of moved more over into service design and had a larger team. Well, very often being the only UX in the team is quite Mm -hmm. challenging. You have to both do the work and then be advocate for what you're doing and you're alone. So you're constantly changing your vision from zooming in to work on details and then zooming out. So it helps to have at least a second UXer working with you. And I enjoyed having projects where I could be, you know, in a small team of two or three Mm -hmm. on the same project that was really easier for the work to be done. But then building a team was not something also I planned to be doing. But I was asked um, after being in a year at Mobgen, the last design agency I was working at, to create that service design offer. So it was about building the offer, building the team and starting selling projects to clients. And I learned a lot building that team because it requires you to get a step out and reflect on your practice and the way you want to practice and what you can think of the skills that you're going to need to start with and what it means to be a service designer compared to a UX designer, which is a little bit more facilitating work. So you have a little bit of a different role. So, well, I I think I saw a lot of candidates when when I was hiring to, to build that team. And it was not easy to find the right profiles because I wanted also people able to not only think about great ideas, but being able to craft them and make them uh, tangible and real. So I guess I started with the first members of my team that joined were very skilled in the facilitation role. They were super dynamic, energetic, and they could prepare workshops and co-creative sessions with clients. And you could really rely on them to have everything ready and have their workshop timed well. It was really, really nice to see how things could go well just with that good starting point. And then after a few members, I could go a little bit deeper into some specific skills. We needed people that were more oriented towards the visual um, aspect of the work because just naturally when you present the results of your work or you present some outcomes, when they look nice, clients tend to look better at them. <laughs> I mean, that the content is the same, but immediately adding some sketches and making them look alive makes a difference. And that's probably something that you know, a junior professional could not be okay with and thinking, well, the content is there. That's the content that you should look at. But growing in your maturity and your practice, you realize that sometimes it's also about how you tell the story, how you present it. And that makes a difference. So you touched on something a little earlier that I want to spend some time on because we hear service design often. Um, and it is something that you know clients are asking about that is floating out there as a term. We also hear the term experience design and user experience, as you mentioned. What are some of the 
sort of core differentiators between those, or I guess a few of the core um, behaviors or outcomes that define service design specifically? Yeah, I would see it this way, that they really have a common base. It's just a, a way to phrasing things a little bit differently to put pressure on not working alone. And by mm. not alone, is like not only with your colleague UXers or designers, right. but also involving stakeholders in the process very early and yeah. keeping them along the process and looking at things really going deep into how things are happening. What is visible on the front line of the interaction is done with people in backstage. Yeah, I love that phrase, co-creation, you know, with everyone. And um, your point about the service blueprint being sort of like a journey map on steroids, our, our former colleague, when, when she started getting us as a company and, and our clients, helping our clients look at not just the customer journey, but also the underlying ecosystem, the customer experience delivery ecosystem comprised of employee journeys. She absolutely said, as, as you were just saying, Corinne, that her motivation or her inspiration for that was the service blueprint approach taken in service design. And it was just much more detailed. It was much more inclusive of behind the scenes functions. And it looked at before and after the journey in a way that provided the context you might need to get that larger picture and understand why things were happening that maybe weren't apparent in that narrow view of just the journey, right? You, you get some of that context for before and after that would help you understand the decisions that were made, the information that was shared, the words that were used, and, and all of those um, sort of little nuances and details that could be missed by just looking at the journey. Exactly. It also helps you to realize that there are also people involved in the process. Uh, to take mm. the example of a yeah. customer service agent, you might want to improve your customer services experience in general and think about ways to do it. If you don't involve the agent that is like at that moment interacting with your customer, you might get it wrong. And you need to empower people to be able to deliver what you want. So involving them very early in the process and identifying everyone having a role in that customer journey helps to think holistically of a great solution. So thinking of service design and needing to look at this larger ecosystem of touch points beyond just that interface layer, is there a project that you worked on where that was used, where it uncovered some sort of interesting findings or some changes that had to be made? I can think of a few. And one of the first service design assignments we run was for a utility company, and they wanted to reduce the time that it would take them to solve an electricity outage by 50% in the coming two years. That was quite a challenging mm. objective. And while we were mapping out the outage journey, that's how we envisioned the service blueprint was, let's put the outage at the center and see what happens. We realized that the technicians on the field needed to, you know, when there was an outage, diagnose where the problem was. And and they would go on the field, but they were missing data. And customer service agents had access to meters that they could ping. So they could have data that the technicians on the field were needing, but there was no way for them to transfer that information or from the field to access it. And it was actually something that we could very quickly test right on the field. I remember running a few pilots with the agents taking a picture of their screen with that information coming from the smart meters and sending the pictures through WhatsApp to the technician on the field. So at the same time, we were still conducting research, but already trying to see if some things would be a good thing to implement and would help reduce that amount of time that it would 
take them to fix outages. That's great. That's a good example. Karine, we would love to hear from you. No pressure as you're you know, busy producing this research, but what do you have um, uh, on your research agenda? What can listeners expect to see from you uh, in reports in the next few months? Yeah, so you might have noticed I'm very interested in multidisciplinary teams collaboration. And while well, service design thinking has proven to be delivering great results in setting up the right environment for teams to work together on their customer experience challenges. So naturally, I will be researching and writing about it, how it can also support cultural changes, bringing teams from you know different departments to work together to improve experiences, not leaving those questions to only UX pros. That changes a little bit the picture. So there's a lot, I think, to research and write about. I will also work on customer services, probably bringing a new perspective to it. You know, a lot of companies are seeing customer service questions starting with reductions of costs only perspective. But I do think that there can actually be moments of truth in the customer experience. A well-handled contact, even when it's about a complaint, can be turned into a positive experience and maybe even be a differentiator compared to competitors. So, of course, there's an overlap there between customer experience and employee experience, but in the end, it's about humans. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for helping us introduce you to our listeners. And we really look forward to that research. That does sound like a very rich area to investigate and to delve into. So thank you for doing that in advance. No report links yet as Karina is is working on that, but uh, soon enough, you will see a nice stream of research coming from Amsterdam. Uh, Well, that's all for this week's CX cast. We'll talk to you next week. Bye for now. If you have feedback or questions about this week's episode, please email us at cxcast, one word, at forrester.com. And remember, your customer's perceptions is your customer experience reality.